Our scripture reading today is Acts, the third chapter, verses 1 through 10. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. At three o'clock in the afternoon, and a man, lame from birth, and a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate, so that he couldn't ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood. And he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tommy. It was beautiful. I always knew you could sing well. I remember you singing well. Where are you, Tommy? Where are you going? <laughs> oh, no, no, you're fine. You're fine. Okay. I remember hearing you at Beach Retreat. You were always the award winner. You're even better now since you... Who's this wonderful instructor you now have with voices? Yeah, Ethan. It was just beautiful, very moving, and thank you for that. And you, you can... You, if you need to go, I understand. Okay. <laughs> Whatever you want to do. It was just beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, We are in the uh, second of a series uh, called Acting on Our Mission from the Book of Acts. I wonder if you're familiar with the name Tullian Chavidgen. Anybody know who Tullian Chavidgen is? Strange name. He is the grandson of Billy Graham. He is also pastor of a large church in South Florida. And he wrote a book three years ago that... uh, I, I haven't, I've read parts of the book. I just love the title, which is this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's a great equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I want you to think about that. It was sung earlier, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, just give me Jesus. These other things I think I need know what I need is Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And we can nod our heads and smile, but can you say that and can you claim that for yourself? You know, is your life in line with that equation? In the passage that Bill read a moment ago, the crippled man asks Jesus asks Peter rather and John for money. And it's an interesting passage because Peter looks right at him and says, look at us. Now, in the Greek, it's interesting. It's the, the, the preposition there is eis, E-I-S in the Greek, which means into. He says, literally, look into us. It's a powerful, powerful term there. Look into us. Look inside of us. Look at what makes us tick. And so he's got the man's attention. And basically what Peter says is, I don't have money to give you, but I do have 
Jesus, I will give you him. Now the man is healed and that's wonderful, but is that what is important here? No. What's important is that he found this Savior and Lord for whom he went off leaping and praising him in joy. He found his newfound Savior. He wanted healing. He wanted money for healing, but Peter knew he needed Jesus. Man, Bill, that loved the authenticity of your word earlier today, and that image of the frozen leopard is just burned into my head now. I'm, I'm going to pray now for some other, since you used it here, I need to pray for some place to go preach so I can use the frozen leopard image. So powerful, though, this image of you know, climbing higher and higher, and where does it get you? You know, what value does it have? Because ultimately nothing else has value as Jesus does. That, that, just, that was beautiful. Now, this was the first miracle performed by someone in the church that's recorded in Acts. Now, this was a miracle not performed by Jesus. It is one that is taken on by Peter. Now, I've said this many a time, and I find this so important. When he was on earth, how did people address Jesus more than any other way? What moniker, what title do they? It starts with an R. Somebody help me. Rabbi, which means what? Teacher. And as I've said many a time, miracles are never for the sake of a naked display of power when it comes to Jesus. It's not just to do that. It's not just to show that he's God's son. Yeah, that could be part of it. It's not just to show compassion upon someone or to make things better. Those are all fine and good, but the primary reason Jesus performed miracles was to create a teachable moment again and again and again. He used that to teach, to offer some lesson. And what's so beautiful here with this first miracle that we know of performed by someone in the early church, performed by Peter, is that Peter follows suit. He acts as rabbi here. Yes, the man was physically cured. Well, that's great and fine. But what does Peter do immediately following, beginning in verse 11? He launches into a sermon, into a teaching lesson. And he's basically saying, people who are within earshot of me and eyeshot of what just happened, it is Jesus who healed him. And Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah for whom we have yearned. You need to repent of your sins and give your life to him. And if you go down to verse 19, I think it's so cool. It says, you need to repent of your sin so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. What What an interesting way of putting it. But Peter said, you will be refreshed. You will be restored. Your soul will be restored when he enters your life. So this miracle points to teaching about the ultimate healing and wholeness that you find in Christ. Whatever else we have in this life, what we need is Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all of this world, but give me Jesus. That's what we need. Ultimately, nothing else matters when it gets down to it. Jesus plus nothing equals... Can can you fill in the blank? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Well, let's apply this to missions as Jesus is the miracle... When we realize that, we are empowered in some powerful ways as missionaries for his kingdom. First of all, we're empowered as a unified people. The text tells us that. When we realize that nothing else really matters except Jesus, we can set aside our self-concerns. We can set aside our differences. We can set aside our differences in temperament, in opinion, uh, political persuasion, ethnicities. I mean, the list goes on and on. Even some doctrine, it doesn't matter once you have your boots on the ground and you're doing missions on behalf of Jesus. 
You can set all of that aside and we become united in spirit and in the spirit as Christ unites us. You know, the text talks about Peter and John. Now, that's just a great study in contrast right there. Peter and John could have been born as perpetual irritants to one another. So different from each other. Peter was definitely a doer. John was definitely a dreamer and a poet. Peter was an activist. John was more reflective and meditative. Peter was impetuous and impulsive. John was very serene. Peter was like a wild mountain lion, and, and, and John was like a, a deep river just running so deep and quiet. It'd be stretching the parallel somewhat, but really Peter is more of a Martha temperament, thinking of Martha in the New Testament, and John was more like Mary. They could have really been irritants to one another. There are other dynamics going on that could have led to friction. You know, John was probably closer to Jesus than Peter was, when it gets down to it, at least on earth. And John followed Jesus all the way to the cross. Peter got scared and denied him and hid. So you would think there's all these dynamics where you would think they would not get along. But after the miracle of Pentecost, you see these men just welded together in unity. Unity of mission. These people with contradictory temperaments together ministering as one. That's the power of the gospel. When we buy into it with all that we have, we give ourselves over. And it welds us together under the power of the Spirit. Can't help but think of mission trips like the ones that, that Bill talked about. Or if you go on, th- think about construction mission trip where, you know, w- w- some of us will wind up working with other uh, believers from all across the country. And you labor with those people and you dine with those people and you pray with those people and you worship with those people and this sense of unity that comes along that coalesces is just just marvelous uh, the group in mongolia i see bill out here the mongolia group go into one of those crowded little are they called gurs bill those huts go into one of those little gur huts with gontamer and whoever else and 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 the deans and everybody else and just worship in there and there's this sense of unity even though these are believers who are you know Hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles, thousands of miles apart. But then there's this sense of unity that comes along. Go to South Africa, as some of us are going in 10 days or so. And, and you can go worship at King of Kings, which is more of, a, of an, you know, a, a suburban type of place. It's much like a Brookwood, from what I understand. And there's a wonderful sense of unity with the people there. But then you go to, I think it's Masapumalele. Did I say it right? Masapumalele. You go worship there closer to the shanties with more uh, Africans there. And, and, and it's, again, this sense of we are one together. Or do any of these ministries that we do right around here. You know, worship with Truvan. You know, go to the Truvan banquet, whatever it might be. And you have this sense of, of unity of purpose because you realize, you know, ultimately it's not about me. It's all of us together. And there's something about the flexibility and the forced adaptation of mission work <laughs> That makes you realize, man, this is so not about me. I mean, it's culture shock as soon as the plane lands and people start taking your luggage and you make all these realizations of what you have, what they don't have, and it just goes on and on. But you've got to be so flexible. And one thing about mission work is it involves a lot of improvisation. Now, I love the word improvisation. I love the word improv. Some of you know my son, Nick, is part of an improv group at Texas Christian University, and they perform before hundreds of people every week on Thursday evening. So, so some people have that particular comedic uh, talent for improv, but you've got to do improv with mission work. 
And it reminded me of something, it's a speech that I read by Stephen Colbert. Anybody know who Colbert is? Interesting guy, um, comedian, has that talk show. He's a devout Catholic, he's a Sunday school teacher. And he gave a commencement address at his alma mater, Northwestern University. And he said this, he said, After I graduated from Northwestern, I moved to Chicago and did improv. Now, there are very few rules about improvisation, but one of the things that I was taught early on is that you are not the most important person in the scene. Everybody else is. And if, the most important, and if they are the most important people in the scene, you will naturally pay attention to them and serve them. But the good news is you're in the scene too. So hopefully to them, you're the most important person and they will serve you. No one is leading You're all following the follower, you're serving the servant, and you cannot win at improv. And he ended by saying this, and I thought, boy, this applies to missions. And life is an improvisation. I'd say missions is as well. You have no idea what's going to happen next, and you are mostly just making things up as you go along. And like improv, you cannot win your life, but you can serve others through life. That's how he ends it. And I think mission work is a lot like improv, isn't it? And when you do that as people on mission and realizing it's not all about you, it it reminds us that we've got to be flexible and selfless. And it's about Jesus. And that is what unifies us. We do have that one who is really in charge. Kind of like what Bill was talking about. I mean, we're wanting to take charge when some situation comes up. And and we're wanting to, you know, get our heads wrapped around it, our hands wrapped around it. But then it's like you just got to give it back over to him. And again, that's what unifies us. And ultimately, when we know that Jesus is what we have, secondly, we can do this. We can take doxology with us as we do mission work. I preached a sermon a few weeks ago about doxology, uh, about the need to take doxology with you wherever you go. Doxology means glory. Just take the glory of God wherever you go. In the most difficult of situations or the best of situations, the easiest of situations, the most complicated of situations, take doxology with you. Take praising God with you. Uh, Peter and John and other Christians were doing that in this passage. They were taking doxology with them. Keep in mind, historically, they were going to the temple, and that's where they went to worship. Now, keep in mind, they were not allowed into the temple, but they were just, out of because of thousands of years of habit, they figured that's where we will go worship. Now, think about this. The early Hebrew Christians, at this point, they didn't have a church to go to. There was no church building. But what was familiar to them over the course of hundreds of years, thousands of years, well, you go to the temple. Well, they wouldn't go into the temple, but they might sit on the temple steps. They might gather along one of the walkways on either side of the temple, and that's where they would gather. But I want you to think about this, though. This was a Sadducean temple where most likely the conspiracy to crucify Jesus took place inside there. It was planned out. And they're right outside those walls, and that's where they meet as church. Couldn't have been the easiest place for them to meet, but it's just kind of what they were used to. And so that's where they would go meet at ascribed times to worship. I just find that fascinating that they, that they went to a place that really, just right within those walls is where their very Savior and Lord, you know, the plan to kill him was, was uh, put together at that point in that place. And yet they took doxology with them anyway, (laughs) that close to that evil, if you will. And I think that's so neat that they were willing to do that, no matter how uncomfortable it was. Because they realized, again, it wasn't about them. You know, sometimes it seems like people, and I will say, particularly in the American church, they get disgruntled 
And they get frustrated and they want to be naysayers in their churches. They want to, oh, we're thinking about leaving. Why? Well, it's just not, fill in the blank, doctrinal enough. It's not liturgical enough. It's not contemporary enough. It's not pretty enough. You know, it's not, it's not something enough for them, and so they become disgruntled or they think about leaving. I'm thinking, man, the earliest Christians didn't have enough of anything. They had nothing, but they had doxology. They had Christ, who is everything, and that's all they needed. And that's all they needed to take. And when you realize that, amazing things can happen. I loved it a few weeks ago when we recognized uh, the senior high graduates here including Emma Reeves, Annie Hamm, and we went to this luncheon afterwards, and Caleb got up and read some of uh, Emma's and Annie's reflections about just being a part of Brookwood and about the youth group. And he, one of the questions that they answered was, what is your most memorable moment uh, in the youth group? And both of them said the same thing, and I've heard other youth talk about this as well. I've heard my son talk about it. They, it was when they went on this mission trip to Fairfield. Was anybody on the Fairfield trip? And it was a real loosey-goosey kind of improv kind of trip anyway. Wasn't a lot of structure to it, but they went and, and did wonderful mission work. But on the last night, that youth group did what they do quite often, is they had a communion service and then a foot-washing service. And so they did that, and, and, and you know they, they didn't have any musicians there. Uh, somebody had an iPhone. They didn't have a speaker or anything, but they just had a little iPhone. Have you ever played music through an iPhone? I mean, it's fine, but it's not very loud. But that's what they had, and so they just put on a set of uh, Christian songs, and they just they went through the communion, they went through the foot washing, and, and then they just kind of sat there and reflected, and I think it was kind of one of those moments like, well, we don't know what to do next, but this song called We Are the Body came on, which I think was written by someone who goes to Brook Hills, right? Mandy Mapes? Yeah. And We Are the Body came on, and I don't care if he's here or not, and I'll embarrass him, but Jody Martin just started humming the song. By the way, I wish Jody would get out there and do something, you know, for the church and everything. But he just started humming the song and then just started singing it real quietly. And then the other youth in there just started picking up on it. And they all started singing it <laughs> and really started singing along. And it just, it just kind of busted out into this spontaneous worship service. All these other songs came on and they just sang. And they said it was just this incredible moment of doxology. They definitely had taken doxology with them. And out of that, God blessed them with this incredible worship experience, which was the most, most memorable moment of worship of these two young ladies, outstanding young ladies who graduated and who were part of this youth group. God can do amazing things when we bring doxology with us. And he can sometimes surprise us. Have you ever been surprised on a mission trip? Like, wow, I didn't think I could be used at all, but God used me anyway. I like to even, this was the first miracle in the church that we know of. I even wonder how Peter was. I mean, was Peter nervous when he got up and there's a guy that, you know, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. When he actually stood up and walked, I wonder what Peter did. Like, whoa, <laughs> this, this worked. And I think God can surprise you and me like that in amazing ways. And finally, and here's where I need you to, to put on your theological cap. Come on, put your cap on, theological cap. No, I'm saying, put it on. There it is right there. Put it on. You're just not in the mood to do little motions this morning. Is that right? That's fine. But when we know that Jesus is what we do have and what we ultimately need most and that he's everything, we can know that our mission work isn't in vain because we're helping restore people in the world. Now, follow me on this. Why didn't Jesus come to earth in power like an action hero, like Superman or someone else like that? Why didn't he come like that? Why didn't he ever fly? 
Why didn't he take up Satan's uh, temptation and jump off the pinnacle of the temple and, you know, not bruise his toe? But why didn't he fly or so that he could see through walls or skywrite or something? Why didn't he do that? Why didn't he just come along and just pounce on evil? Why didn't he just come and, and literally kill evil? Because he came to restore, and I want you to think about this. If Jesus had come in strength and in power to do away with evil, you know what? We would all be gone. Because we're one of the great sources of evil in the world. For him, to, for him to have defeated evil would have meant to have killed us. Truly. So he decided to come in weakness. To love us. To show grace. And his power shone forth through his weakness on the cross. And his power shows forth through our weakness. We need to remember that and trust that. You know, Through the cross he saved us from sin. He restored us. And now he promises that one day we will all be restored. And one of the great teachings of Scripture is that all things will ultimately be restored. All things in this world. Everything will be made right and just and, yes, restored. Isn't it interesting that all the miracles that are recorded by Jesus or by the early church in the New Testament, they serve to alleviate pain or suffering or crisis. I mean, he could have just written something in the sky, done done some other supernatural feat, put on a cool show. But no, it was always to alleviate some form of suffering or difficulty or crisis. Now, why does he do that? Now, follow me here because it's pointing to the end of all things when all will be healed, when crisis will be no more, when there will be no more illness, no more disease, no more poverty, no more injustice, no more blindness, no more disability, whatever it might be. Keep in mind, originally, all of that was not here. It was not present in Eden, in the Edenic paradise. We corrupted it. God hates all that stuff as much as you do. God hates injustice and poverty and pain and illness, and the list goes on. But think about this. The miracles are a restoration of the original order. It's a restoration of that which was originally that which was most natural. You know, sin is an abnormality. It corrupted the original goodness, the original uh, paradise that we had. So think about this. And N.T. Wright helped me with this. Miracles are a restoration to the original order, to that which it was. He said healings are the only natural things in a world that is unnaturally corrupted and wounded. Think about that. Miracles are more normal than what we see each and every day. Because they were present at the beginning. We corrupted this place. So a miracle gets us closest and closer back to where things were originally. You with me on that? I told you to put on your cap. But he's restoring it, and he will restore it. So whenever a miracle occurs there in the New Testament, it's another promise that one day it's going to be like this. And all things will be healed, and all things will be whole, and all things will be right. All things will be just. And the key restoration for us, obviously, is redemption from sin. I think of another passage in Luke chapter 4, and there were friends who brought in a crippled man, and Jesus said, did he say, be healed? No. What did Jesus say first off? He said, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, it's not written in there, but I'm sure the guy was thinking, well, that's not what I need. I need to walk. And what Jesus was saying is, no, what you really need, what you most ultimately need is grace and forgiveness. That's what you really need. 
Suffering is not the primary problem. It is a problem, but the primary problem is sin. Get that straight and your deepest need is taken care of. Someone said one ounce of sin can destroy you more than ten tons of suffering. Suffering is bad. It's difficult indeed. It can sometimes, though, make you more empathetic or stronger. It can make you more humble, more dependent on God. But sin, on the other hand, puts you at odds with God. Puts you at a point of risk in your relationship with God. Sin can destroy your relationship with God. Which is why I love how the story ends. The man in Acts chapter 3 here leaps up and praises God. It reminds me of Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, out of which we get a wonderful hymn. Isaiah, who is prophesying about how when all things are going to be made right, he says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Reminds me of that hymn. Actually, it was this passage that inspired Charles Wesley to write, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Do you remember that stanza that says what? Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come and what for joy? Anybody know? Leap ye lame for joy. It's about restoring things to the way God originally had it. It's about restoring things to where God wants it because he hates the evil in this world more than you do. But thank God he didn't come and pounce on evil and kill it because we wouldn't be here. Rather, he offered us grace. So one day it will all be restored, but for now you and I have mission work to do, and we can do it confidently Because you know what? Jesus plus nothing equals what? Everything. Let's pray together. We thank you, O God, that because of your lordship, you're in charge of it all. You're going to handle it all. We are simply fortunate to be a part of this great and glorious story that is about you. We thank you so much for the opportunities to go on challenging mission trips where, yes, there will be moments where we feel inadequate, where we have to improvise, where we have to be flexible and really lean into you in faith. But Lord, as Bill said earlier, challenge us to do that, especially if in a sense we're feeling a bit flabby in our mission work, in our ministry. Help us to throw ourselves out there and throw ourselves toward you and realize no matter how uncontrollable the situation is, you indeed are present and we will make a difference with what we do. Thank you so much that... (laughs) You plus nothing equals everything. You are everything, oh God. And may we grasp that for ourselves, claim it for ourselves as we press on as missionaries of your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen.